Joshua chapter 2 is where we're at, and uh, I'm going to read quite a lengthy passage of Scripture. There's no way for me to know if you all already know this story, so I'm going to read everything we need to know to kind of talk about what we need to talk about. So it's about 21 verses, so if you like to stand, you can. If you think you might fall down like midway, like verse 18, go ahead and stay seated, okay? Uh, But I'm going to read the first 21 verses, and so you can stand if you'd like to stand, honor the Word of God. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who, you, who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I don't know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out, and I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax, and she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, as the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard now the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you, and, and, and you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and to Og, whom you devoted destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord... That as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers, my sisters, all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you made with us to swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father, mother, brothers, and all your father's household. If anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. And we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is within, who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Father, we marvel at your grace. We marvel at your riches. We marvel at your patience, your mercy, your goodness. Father, we praise you today. We pray, Father, that you would give us faith. Stir our hearts up by hearing the word. Give us faith to risk it all for the sake of the gospel. Forgive us when we don't risk, when we don't obey, because we want to be comfortable. God, take us out of that today. Please work in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, what we've been doing, um, just so you get kind of a picture of the book of Joshua, is we've been giving a little review uh, each week, and so let me start out by doing that. I'll try to be short, okay? So in Genesis chapter 12, God appears to a man named Abraham, and he tells Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going I'm to give you children. I'm going to give you a son, and from that son, a great nation, a great many descendants is going to come about. And from that nation, there's going to be one through whom the entire world will be blessed. Well, sure enough, Abraham believes God. He has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. The youngest of whom is named Joseph. Joseph is hated by his brothers because God has a special hand on him. And they betray him and uh, lie to their father and sell him into slavery into Egypt. And his father thinks that he is dead. Well, hard times come upon Jacob and his 12, his 11 sons now. Hard times come upon them. A famine is in the land. In fact, a famine is in all the land. But as God's providence would have it, God has raised Joseph up to be the prime minister of Egypt. And through God's foresight, Joseph has prepared Egypt to be able to deal with the famine. And so Jacob and his family travel to Egypt. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, says, guys, you're, you did a bad thing, but God did it for good. God arranged it for good. God used it for good. And so I forgive you. Come live in Egypt. So now Jacob and his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, are in Egypt. Well, they're there for about 430 years doing a couple things. Number one, having lots of babies. They're multiplying exactly as God told them to do. And then number two, they fall out of favor with the next Pharaoh and the next Pharaoh to where they become enslaved. So now they are a nation of slaves that is multiplied 430 years later. And God raises up a man named Moses. And Moses delivers the children of Israel out of Egypt through 10 great places and through the Red Sea, parts of the Red Sea, and right to the edge of the promised land, the promised land that God promised to give way back to Abraham. Now, they send out 12 spies into the promised land. All 12 come back saying, man, God wasn't kidding. This is an awesome land. But 10 of the spies, they don't believe. They're not willing to risk at all trusting in God. They say, we can't do this. It's too hard. It's impossible. There's fortified cities. They've got a military. They've got armies. We can't do it. We should go back. This was a bad idea. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, no, 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 guys. God told us he'd give us the land. Let's trust him. Let's go. The children of Israel followed the ten and not the two. And so that entire generation wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until they all died off. So now only Joshua and Caleb are left out of the original generation. And now all their children have again multiplied in the wilderness over 40 years. And they're right back at the edge of the promised land for a second time. And so chapter 1 of Joshua was all about God getting Joshua ready, saying two things. Joshua, you got to step out in faith. You got to believe me, trust me, cross the Jordan. And number two, for you to be successful, and this applies to you and I, we talked about this last week, for you to be successful in the mission of God, to be the people that I have called you to be, that I've promised, that it's for you to have the possession that I've promised and provided, you need to be a person of my book, of the Word of God. You need to meditate on it day and night, then you'll have success. So that now brings us to chapter 2 and the story that we just read. Now, the first thing on our plates this morning is we are going to do a little bit of marveling, okay? Have you marveled recently at the greatness of our God? Have you? Have you? Have you stood in wonder of how incredibly good God is? You ought to be doing that, by the way. That, that's part of meditating on His Word. That's part of opening up the Bible and seeing the glorious God that we serve, what He has done, what He is doing, what He's going to do, and just being in awe. Right, So we're going to do that this morning. So some of you, you may be a little out of practice in 
wondering and being in awe and marveling at God. So if you need to stretch a little bit, go ahead and do that, all right? So just get stretched up because you need to do this, okay? You need to wonder and be in awe of the awesome God that we served. And here we go. We're going to talk about the story of Rahab. Now, the interesting thing about this, when you think about it, is that all of Jericho is devoted to destruction. These folks that live in Canaan, that live in Jericho for three, four, five hundred years, since way back in the book of Genesis, God said, all right, if you don't repent, my wrath's going to come upon you. They have not repented in centuries, and the wrath of God is coming. In fact, it's very near. The clock is ticking on Jericho. Every single living thing in Jericho is going to die and perish to an eternal hell. Every single living thing in Jericho is going to be destroyed forever, going to be wiped off the face of the earth, except Rahab. Now, if God's going to spare one person, out of a large metropolitan area. If God is going to spare one person and her family are going to escape the wrath of God, one person and her family are going to be lavished with God's grace, one person and her family are going to be given the eternal riches of God, one person and her family are going to experience the promised land and be grafted into the people of God even more into the royal line of the King of Kings, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That one person, would you ever dream would be the city prostitute. Now, now's the time when you start to marvel, right? You start to marvel at the grace and the mercy of our God. That one person is a prostitute. Now, I spent a lot of time this week thinking about prostitutes. That's something you always want your pastor to say, isn't it? You know? Some of you that do the Twitter thing, you know, hashtag my pastor thought about prostitutes. You know, uh, but I did. Because um, really, for this to really hit you, you, you got to get your mind, I mean, what is a prostitute? This was a woman who had a career, who had lived probably her entire life, probably since she was a girl, living out immoral sexual sin. This was a person who was scorned and hated by the wives of Jericho. This was a person who would not have been accepted into good company, Right? She, she wouldn't have been the person who, who would have been invited over. Nobody invited Rahab to the pampered chef party, right? That, that's the kind of person that Rahab was, right? She was a woman who, can, who was considered dirty, trashy, right? Unredeemable. That is who God saves out of Jericho. There's one person that makes it out of Jericho alive. One person in her family who are plucked out of the fires of an eternal hell. And it is the Canaanite prostitute, Rahab. But then the story gets even better. You know, when God dumps His grace... He tends to go overboard, right? I mean, he does. He just, a little bit's not enough, you know? I mean, he really pours it on. And so as he plucks this Canaanite prostitute out of the eternal fires of hell and puts her with the people of God and lavishes upon her the riches of the promised land, he goes even further and makes her the great-grandma of Jesus. One of the things that 
I really like actually about our New Testament is the genealogies. When you open up into the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, the very first thing you find is a genealogy. Now, why would you find that? You know why? Because the Bible is one continuous story. And so the promises that God made to Abraham way back here, remember, in Genesis 12, and then it happened through the Exodus, and then into the kings, and then the prophets, they are fulfilled in your New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Matthew opens up with the genealogy saying, remember how God promised that somebody from Abraham would come and save the world? That somebody's Jesus. And so let's review his family line. And so Matthew starts out with Abraham and father of Isaac, father of Jacob, Jacob's father of Judah, you know, goes goes down through. And then all of a sudden you get to this verse in verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by... Rahab. Now, what's really interesting is it does not mention all the women. As you read through Abraham to Jesus, it mentions very few of the women. But the Bible goes out of its way to remind you that God not only plucked Rahab out of a life of prostitution in the Canaanite city and put her with the people of God, but he also arranged that this good old Israelite young man named Salmon would marry her. And they would have a son... And that son is Boaz. Any of you ever heard of Boaz before? Have you read the book of Ruth? In the book of Ruth, there's a Moabite lady named Ruth who gives everything, sacrifices her whole life, leaves it all to to join herself to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and become one of the people of God in Israel. And she's out plucking grain, providing for her mother-in-law. And there's a man named Boaz who sees her and who hears about what she's done for her mother-in-law and says, that's just the kind of gal I'd like to marry. Now, why would he, what would possess him to not marry one of the good Israelite girls and marry a Moabite gal who had forsaken everything to be a part of Israel? Well, her, his mama was Rahab. Isn't that cool? You guys aren't marveling enough. I, what's wrong? Do you not stretch? Are you afraid you're going to pull a muscle or something? That's really cool. And then Boaz and, 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 and Ruth. Okay, so you got Salmon and Rahab. And then Boaz and Ruth. And then they have a little boy named Obed. And Obed has a little boy named Jesse. And Jesse grows up. He's fruitful. He has eight sons. And the eighth son is King David. King David. And then you follow the line of King David all the way down to Jesus. So, that's who Rahab is. That's who Rahab would become. Man, I love that. You know what? Jesus is the same way, by the way. You know, Jesus shows us the character of God. and He, he, he did the same thing. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 29... It says in Levi, now who's Levi? Levi's a tax collector. He's another one of those guys that nobody likes. He's another one of those guys that everybody says he's a bad dude. You know, Levi was, was associated with the Romans. He's crooked. He's, he's a cheater. He's a thief. And Jesus walks by the tax booth and says, Hey, Matthew, name was Levi, Matthew Levi, follow me. 
And so now Levi is following Jesus, and we pick up the story here. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, those are the good religious folks, they grumbled at the disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. My friends, marvel at a God who picks out sinners and makes them saints. Marvel at a God who seeks out the unrighteous and then fills them with his own righteousness. You know, I can't help but think that there's somebody here today in one of our three services, maybe many people, who have done terrible, ugly, shameful, humiliating things. And I don't know what those things are, but I do know what Rahab's were. And I do know that the God of the heavens looked down upon the city of Jericho and the house of a prostitute and said, I want her. I want her. I want her to be part of my people. I want her to be part of my story. I want her to be part of my gospel mission that's going to bring about Jesus Christ, the Messiah to the world. And so God looked down and redeemed her and forgave her and cleansed her. And joined her to his son. You know, have you ever thought about that there was some good old boys in Jericho? There had to have been, right? Probably lived on Elm Street or Cherry Avenue, you know. Kind of folks that, you know what all the neighbors said? Oh, that guy, man, he'll give you the shirt off his back. Probably some old boys that took their grandsons fishing every weekend, you know. They were the ones that would stop on the side of the road and change the wheel on your carriage or your wagon for you. There were those guys in Jericho. Guess what? They all perished and they're in hell this day because of the wrath of God, because they were not joined to Jesus. But there's a prostitute in Jericho who's sitting in the heavenlies with Jesus Christ to this day. That's the kind of God that we're talking about. You know, we need to be really careful about writing people off, don't we? We need to be really careful about looking at folks and saying, you know what, they're too bad, or they're too dirty, or they're too trashy, or they're too morally corrupt. No matter who they are, they are not outside of the reach of this kind of God. So let's marvel at that. All right, now let's look at faith. You can keep marveling, by the way, but, you know, I'm, I'm telling you, that's what I wanted you to marvel at, all right? Uh, but let, let's look at faith, okay? Because one of the interesting things about this story is that the New Testament talks about it several times. The first time, or the first time I'm going to bring your attention anyway, that it talks about it, it says that everything that Rahab did, everything we just read in the story, it was all motivated, it was all powered by faith so when we open up our bibles to the book of hebrews hebrews chapter 11 and we look at verse 31 it's this hall of fame hall of faith it says by faith rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies okay so the writer of hebrews looks back at the story of rahab out of joshua 2 and says that everything that rahab did all of her actions were motivated by faith. Now, that's interesting to me. I love it whenever the Bible says, look, this is a picture of what faith looks like in action. Because you see, a lot of times we have people who say they have faith. But have you noticed there's not a lot of action going on? Okay, so I love it when Jesus points out that this is what faith looks like. He does that a bunch in the New Testament. Two of my favorites are 
The time when the, the friends got this friend that's a paralyzed guy, and, and, and he just needs to get to Jesus. And so they cart him up, and they carry him to the house where Jesus is at, but they can't get in the door. They can't get in the windows. They, can't, they try all the They can't get into Jesus. But they are not deterred. They get up on the roof. They haul the guy up on the roof. They tear a hole in the roof, and they lower him down. And the Scripture says, when Jesus saw their faith. Isn't that interesting? In other words, you know what faith does in people? It makes them relentless to get their friends to Jesus. One of the other ones I really like is uh, the lady that's had the flow of blood for, what was it? I don't remember, like 10 years, something like that, all her, her whole life, whatever. Nobody could help her. She'd spent all her money on physicians, and she hears about Jesus. And you know what happens in her heart? She says, if I can just get to him. You know, now she's untouchable. She's got a flow of blood. In the Old Testament days, in the days of Jesus, man, if you were to touch somebody and you had a flow of blood, that made them unclean. But that doesn't deter her. She weaves her way through the crowd. She gets up, fights her way through, reaches out, tries to let nobody see what she's doing, and grabs hold of his robe. And you remember what Jesus said. He said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith. So what's, what's faith look like? In the life of Rahab. Well, let's start out with that. Well, first of all, faith looks like, or faith comes from, hearing the Word of God. Now, we just talked about that last week, didn't we? When we were talking about why you ought to meditate on the Word of God day and night, we, we, we mentioned Romans 10 17. This says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. And we talked about how the Word of Christ, the character of God, the story of God, the mission of God, everything we find in the Bible, as we take that in, it stirs up our faith, right? And so when you read about Rahab, here's what you read. Jo- uh, Joshua 2.10, as she's telling the spies why she did what she did, she says, for we have, do you see the key word there? We have heard, you see that? We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when he came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Now, how did she hear the word of God? Well, Whenever you're a prostitute in a city, you know what happens? You get a lot of travelers, right? You get a lot of travelers that come in and say, she probably had men coming in from all over that region who had seen what happened to the Israelite armies. They had seen the chariots washed up on the shore of the Red Sea. They had seen what happened to the the kings of of Og and Sihon. They had heard and they had seen what the Lord God had done with the Israelites coming out of Egypt, and they had told her. And as she heard the word of God, something happened. In her heart. Why? Because Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Let let me explain what I'm saying. In other words, is it possible for you to hear the word of God and no faith happen? Well, yeah. In fact, that whole generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt, what happened with them? Not only did they hear about the Red Sea, they walked across it. Not only did they experience victory with the king, I mean, they hear about it, they experienced it. And yet when when they got to the edge of the promised land, they would not believe. And so simply hearing the word of God doesn't necessarily mean faith. And we know that just from our services every Sunday, don't we? But without hearing, you can't have faith. You know, there are a lot of things that you and I cannot do and create and manufacture in the people we love i'm talking about our kids first of all you know uh i wish that we could just make our kids believe wouldn't that be great just make them believe 
you know? Man, I, I wish that that were possible. That is not possible. I wish it were possible to, to just manufacture in our children this, this fear of God and respect of His Word. But we can't force that on them. I was reading to my little guy last night. He started doing this just the last couple nights. I don't know what is going through his little three-year-old brain. But, uh, but I was reading. I read the story of Jericho to him last night. I thought that'd be good, right? And then we worked on our verse together. We got a verse we've been working on together. And we got little actions to it and everything. And I'm laying in his bed with him. And then we got done with that. And I said, okay, buddy, it's time for me to pray for you. And I put my hand on his head. And I closed my eyes. And I started praying. And as soon as I close my eyes, he makes a break for it, you know. And he's done that a couple times. I, I think he thinks, you know, his eyes are closed. You know, he makes a break for it, but I was ready. I, I got the, the force. I used the force, and I knew it was coming, you know. So he makes a break for it. I catch him with his leg, you know. And I just drag him back, and I pray for him, holding on to him there. And then when, when, when I'm done praying, I, I pull him back up close to me. I said, listen, buddy, you know, we need to respect. When Daddy's praying, I'm talking to God, you know. I'm, but here's the thing. I can't make him. Does that make sense? Like, I can't make him see the seriousness of that. I can't make him understand the gravity of talking to the God of heaven about your soul. I can't do that. You can't do that. One of the things we're not going to do at Lincoln Avenue, we're not going to manipulate kids into false conversion. We're not going to do that. We're not going to bring them in and have a campfire and say, all right, everybody come over and hold your hand over the campfire. You know, do you want to spend eternity burning in hell? You know, you know uh, who wants to receive Jesus? We're not going to do that because it's not real. And we can't. We can't make other people believe. We know what we can do. We have this. We can make sure they hear the glorious deeds of the Lord. Man, that's completely in our control, is it not? That is why our children's ministry is based out of, anytime you have Pastor Daniel give you a training on children's ministry or talk about our children's ministry, he's going to mention Psalm 78, verse 4, that says, We will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He's done. We're going to do that. Man, we're going to tell them. We're going to tell them about Jonah and the whale. And we're going to tell them about Abraham and Isaac. And we're going to tell them about Noah and the ark. And we're going to tell them about Daniel and the lion's den. And we're going to tell them about David and Goliath. And we're going to tell them about the serpent in the garden. And we're going to tell them about Jesus on the cross and the resurrection and the church and the coming king. We're going to tell them. You know why? Because faith comes by hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. And some of those children, they're going to hear and what happened in Rahab's heart when she heard is going to happen in them. My friends, we need to make sure that people hear the word of God. Because that's the beginning of faith. So Rahab heard and Rahab believed. Man, I love the little profession of faith in verse 11. Isn't this great? As soon as, as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Listen, here it is. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Man, what is, what is she saying there? She's saying, I've realized there is no other God but the God of Israel. He's God in the heavens. He's God on the earth. He's the only God. Folks, that's faith. So Rahab heard the word of God and Rahab believed. Now, 
The other interesting thing about Rahab, she's mentioned a bunch, some pretty crucial times. She's mentioned in Hebrews 11 in the, in the Hall of Faith, and then she's, inter- she's mentioned in James chapter 2. Now, James chapter 2 is a passage about how does, how does faith and works, how does that mesh together, okay? So, so what James is, is not saying, he's not saying that we are saved by works, okay? A lot of people have read that and mistaken what, what James is saying. The whole rest of the New Testament forces on us the, the reality that, that the only way to be saved is by being joined by faith to Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, okay? But what James is saying is that if that faith is real, if you truly trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, things are going to happen in your life. You're, you're going to change. Like that's, that's going to take, that's going to put on skin and it's going to manifest itself in action. In other words, True faith leads to works of grace. And that's James' point. And he uses Rahab as an example. In verse 24, he says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In other words, if, if, you, if your faith is by itself, okay? If all you have is a profession, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. But it doesn't change your life. It doesn't come out of you practically. Then James says, man, your faith is dead. He, he says that earlier in James 2. He says, faith is by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's verse 17. All right? So keep reading here, though. He gives Rahab as an example. He says in verse 25, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. What James is saying is that Rahab's faith was real. He, he, he talks about a demonic faith. In James chapter 2, a faith that just simply has fuzzy feelings about God. Or a faith that simply says, I believe these facts about God. James says, even the demons believe facts about God. They're not confused. When, if you would ask a demon, hey, is, is there one God in the universe? If he, he knows there is. He knows there's only one God. He knows that that one God manifests itself, himself in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The demons know that. But the demons do not trust God. They don't treasure God. They don't seek God. They don't obey God. They don't love God. They don't depend upon God. And so James says, when you have a faith that is active and real, that faith leads you to works that show that your faith is real. You know, if Rahab had said, I believe the God of Israel is the only true God. And then she'd said, yep, those guys that came from Israel, they're upstairs. Go get them. Her faith would not have been real. But Rahab's faith meant turning her back on her old life. She turns her back on everything she knows. And she puts all her chips on the God of Israel. You know, I struggled whether to say something about this next little portion. And what I decided is to say a little bit. Partly because I can't already finish the sermon I have. Um, but, but I'm afraid some of you are going to stumble over the fact that Rahab does not tell the truth, right? The king's men come and says, where are those guys? Well, she just hit them upstairs. What did she say? Oh, they were here. I didn't know where they were from. Uh, they went out the gate. Go, go. You can still catch them, <laughs> you know? I think I, think I see them. Go get them. You know? she, she lies to them. Now, here's what we know. What we know is this. The God of the Bible is a God of truth, right? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. John 8, 44, Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He says, the Father is a liar, or not the Father, 
The devil is a liar and the father of all lies. Okay, but Jesus is truth. So what the New Testament teaches us is that you're going to face times in your life where telling the truth is going to cost you money. Where telling the truth is going to cost you a relationship. Where telling the truth is going to cost you a very awkward situation. Where telling the truth is going to maybe get you fired. You know what the Bible tells you unashamedly to do in all those situations? Tell the truth and trust God with the consequences. But why doesn't Rahab tell the truth? Well, there's a couple times in the Bible where we see that when life is on the line, when innocent life is on the line, that there are times where the step of faith is actually not telling the truth. Okay, The two times that I'm thinking of are Exodus chapter 1 and 2 with the... um, the babies born in Egypt. So Pharaoh sees Israel multiplying and he says, okay, okay. He has a midwife convention. He gets all the midwives together and he says, all right, here's what you guys are going to do. Whenever an Israelite has a baby, if that baby comes out and it's a boy, you're to kill it right then. If it's a girl, you're to let it live. Okay? Now, you know what the Israelite midwives do? They do not obey Pharaoh. All right? They won't, they won't kill the baby boys. They fear God. It says that they fear God. Why? Because it is wrong to murder baby boys. And then when Pharaoh confronts them on it, you know what they say? They're like, man, those Hebrew women, they are the babiest having folks you've ever seen. They're out in the field hoeing, and bam, they pop one out, you know. And it, by the time we get there, it's already done. Now, that wasn't totally true. But you know what God does? It says that. You read it, just Exodus 1 and 2. God honors the midwives for what they did. Here in Joshua 2, Rahab is actually told by the spies, don't tell this business. I mean, these are God's representatives. She knows that if she tells them, hey, they're upstairs, they're going to kill them. It's almost akin to, uh, have you ever heard the story of Corey Timboom? Corey Timboom was, res- they, her family was rescuing Jews from going to be slaughtered in the concentration camps. They would hide them in their house. And when the Gestapo would come, Nope, no Jews here. Was that a godly thing or an ungodly thing? You see, there are situations in which, and and honestly, probably most of us will never encounter one. I mean, here's the thing. Sometimes we make a huge deal out of these kind of situations in the Scripture, but the reality is I've never faced one of those situations in my life. Never. I probably won't, honestly. The rule for me will always be tell the truth and let, let God sort it out. Okay? But, there are certain sort of situations where innocent life's on the line. And in that situation, what we see here is for the glory of God, for the good of the kingdom, according to the word of God, Rahab acted in the way that she did. All right? Now, let's get really to the meat of this. What, what, one of the most beautiful things about this passage is that Rahab's faith causes her to risk everything for Jesus, for God. Okay, I love that. I I love that when the New Testament says, man, look at what she did. What she did was done by faith. And then as we look at what Rahab did, she she was a risk taker for the kingdom of God. This is treason, isn't it? I mean, to betray your nation like this, we hang people in our nation, we have in the past, for betraying, for hiding spies, all right? If, If she is found out, All those soldiers have to do is say, hey, we're going to take a little search of this house, you know. Go upstairs, you know, remove, look underneath the flax, the the pile of of, of flax that's laying there, and they're going to find two spies. And when they do find two spies, what's going to happen? 
Rahab's going to be burned in the city square, and all of her family's going to be executed, and she's going to lose all her property. She's going to lose everything. She is literally risking everything for the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not saying that all risk is inspired by faith, right? Sometimes risk is just being dumb, you know? Um, those people who take those pictures on the edge of the Grand Canyon, you know, they get out on this little bitty rock, you know, suspended above 2,000 feet, and they're like, all right, take my picture, take my picture, you know. I'm not sure that they are responding in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think why what they're doing is they're saying, it is more valuable to me to get a bunch of likes on my Instagram account uh, as I post these pictures than it is to live, okay? Uh, And and so I'm not sure that all risk is faith-inspired. But there are many times as a Christian where we are faced with, with am I going to obey God? Am I going to trust Him? Am I going to step out and be faithful? And it's rooted in I'm willing to risk because I trust God. I'm willing to risk because I believe that He is who He says He is and He's going to do what He promised to do. You see, what we find is that faith redefines the worst thing that could happen to us. This is one of the reasons why the pastors in India are willing to die for their faith. They're willing to die to preach the gospel. Three of them have died in the last three or four years because they're willing to preach the gospel. Now, why are they willing to do that? Well, because faith in Christ, faith in what the Word tells us, redefines what the worst thing is that could happen to you. In Romans chapter 8, we're told very clearly by the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 8, verse 35, he says this, who shall, separate, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death or life or angels or rulers or things present or things to come or powers or height or depth or anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul basically says nothing, not death. There's nothing you could do to me. There's nothing you could threaten me with. There's nothing you could take from me that can separate me from the riches of Jesus Christ. That's why in Philippians chapter 1, as he is sitting in a Roman prison cell facing execution, he's able to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, Faith in Christ redefines what the worst thing is that could happen to you. In fact, what it does is, is it tells us that it is more risky to not obey God than to face any risk that would come from following Jesus. This is why in Daniel chapter 3, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told that if they do not bow down to the idol, they will be thrown into the fiery furnace. You know what these guys say in response to that? They say this. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning of the fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Now what do those guys say? They basically say this. Our God can deliver us. In fact, he's going to. He's going to deliver us out of your hand. You're not going to be the boss of us one way or another. We're either going to die in that furnace or he's going to deliver us, but you're you're not going to be over us. And we don't know if he will. We know he can, but we don't know if he will. But either way, we're willing to risk it all to be obedient to God. This is why a young lady named Esther, 
who by God's providence was brought in to be the wife of the king of Persia. This is what, was it Persia? Or? Yeah, I think so. Um, this is why that young lady who, who was not supposed to enter the throne room of the king without being invited, right? Ladies, is that the way it is at home with some of you? You know, you can't approach the recliner unless you're invited, unless the royal scepter Doritos is pointed out to you. That's the way it was for Esther. She couldn't go into the, into the throne room unless the king invited her. But she came to the point where the people of God were going to perish if she did not. And so you remember what she did? She said, hey, everybody pray. I'm going in. And that great verse in Esther 4.16, if I perish, I perish. What's she saying? I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I'm willing to risk it all because I believe that God is who he says he is and that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Let me ask you this. Does your faith in God lead you to risk anything? That's a great question. Does it? Do, do you obey even when you're not sure how it's going to turn out? Do you obey even though you know there might be a chance here that I'll get hurt? There might be a chance here that I'll be inconvenienced. There might be a chance here that it'll be costly. Man, it's, it's, it's so different, right, for most of us because we're usually not dealing with fiery furnace, you know, being executed by the king, losing all of our property. We're not usually dealing with stuff like that. You know what we're usually dealing with? Man, if I obey it might cost me more my evening than I want. If I obey, it might lead me into an awkward situation. If I obey, it might, it might take more of my life than I really wanted to give. Those are the risks that we're talking about most of the time. And so I wonder, would you say, does your faith ever lead you to risk things for God? Or, or do you always play it safe? Huh? You always play it safe? Like if there's a chance that it'll be uncomfortable, if there's a chance it won't go well, do you never bring up spiritual things in the conversation if you're not sure exactly how the person's going to take it? You know, playing it safe is really another way of saying, I don't really trust you. Isn't that what the Israelites did 40 years previous to this? On the edge of the promised land? God said, go, you... I'll give it to you. And they said, whoa, 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 whoa. That's a little risky, God. There's people over there. They don't want us there. They got fortified cities. I think we better just go on back to Egypt. And they never made it to the promised land. What does your faith cause you to do? We're out of time, so let me buzz through the rest of this, Okay. Rahab's faith meant receiving and joining the people of God as she would God himself. Remember how, how Jesus told us in Matthew 24, as you do it to the least of these, my brothers, you do it to me. That's exactly what happened there. She treated the spies as she would treat God. Rahab's faith caused her to immediately intercede for her own family. It's one of the most beautiful things about this passage is not only does Rahab bargain for her own life, but what does she do? In my father's house. My father, my mother, my brother. She gathers them. She gathers them all and gets them in there. And finally, Rahab's faith meant following the word of God exactly. The spies gave her some pretty specific instructions, didn't they? They said, if you're going to live, trust us on this. Hang the scarlet cord out the window. Get everybody that you want to live in your house. 
and don't open the door. You know, in hanging that scarlet cord out the window, isn't it kind of cool? I don't think she knew this. I don't think she had any idea. But isn't it kind of cool that she was pointing to the gospel of Jesus? Isn't that what happened 40 years before when the Israelites were told, if you're going to be saved from the death angel, what do you do? You put the scarlet blood over your doorpost of your house and you get inside and you close the door. And now Rahab's told, if you want to live, you hang the scarlet cord outside your window and you get inside. And now the Bible tells us, if you want to live and you put your faith in the crimson blood of Jesus Christ shed for you and you get in Jesus and in Him, you can live. Man, I wonder, are you here today and you've, you just always thought, man, I've done too many bad things. I, if people knew, they wouldn't want me. I don't, I don't know about that. I don't know that that matters. I do know this. God wants you. You might have been too bad for God. The grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient to save your soul. And so would you put your faith in the shed blood of Jesus? Would you turn your back on the old life? And would you be willing to risk it all for Jesus Christ? If you're already a believer, man, I just want to ask you, does your faith show itself in practical deeds? Does it demonstrate that you trust God for real? It should. You should be risking some things for Jesus. You know why? Because he's taken away the greatest risk, hasn't he? Nothing can separate us from him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I just thank you for uh, the shed blood of Jesus that takes away our sin, that joins us to the Father, that brings us into the kingdom. God, I pray that you would give us the kind of faith that's willing to risk everything to be obedient to you, to follow you, to be a part of your mission. Father, give us that faith today. Give us faith like the faith of Rahab. In Christ's name.